This podcast is a quest for well-being, a quest for a meaningful life through the exploration of fundamental truths, enlightening ideas, insights on physical, mental, and spiritual health. The inspiration is love. The aspiration is to awaken new ways of thinking that can lead us to a new way of being, being well. Some of the topics are addiction, fear, faith, self-compassion, relationships, codependency, emotional intelligence, and more. Welcome to Body, Mind, and Soul Healing Conversations. think of learning or education, you might think of acquiring practical skills, scientific knowledge, or simply factual or historical information about the world. But what if you could obtain an education which is not only professionally, scientifically, or practically useful, like helping to create a new career, but also personally and spiritually expensive? and that your life is transformed in some meaningful and permanent way. But what if you could obtain an education which is not only professionally, scientifically, or practically useful, like helping to create a new career, but also personally and spiritually expansive, and that your life is transformed in some meaningful and permanent way? This is a type of education known as transformative learning, alefttrust.org. In this episode, Dr. Daniel S. Janik talks about neurobiological trauma, teaching, transformative learning, and spirituality. Dr. Daniel S. Janik is a retired physician, educator, author, and the owner of Savant Books and Publications. In his classic publication, Unlock the Genius Within, Neurobiological Trauma, Teaching and Transformative Learning, Daniel argues for the existence of at least two distinct neurobiologically demonstrable learning pathways, traumatic and transformative learning. The power of transformative learning chains trauma and adds meaning to experiences as well as one's life. Dr. Janik has authored over 80 publications under a variety of pen names and is the recipient of numerous awards. Here is the interview with Dr. Daniel S. Janik. In your own words, who is Daniel Janik? Well, actually, I'm a physician, retired, an educator, retired, 
and a researcher. In my retirement, I'm a publisher and performance competition dancer. My first question to you then, after reading parts of your book, Unlock the Genius Within, is what is your definition of genius when it comes to learning how to heal? It's a very good question. To me, everyone that exists has their own genius, and it comes in different flavors, if you will, or different forms with different emphasis. But the genius that we're talking about, unlocking that particular genius, is about what that person does well and identifies with. What the person does well and identifies with. Can you give me some examples of those two elements? Um, I might be a writer. That's how I identify myself. So in that sense, part of my genius is associated with my thought of being a writer and my dedication to that. On the other hand, I'm a very good dancer. That's part of my genius also. What about those who, who are identified with destructive, self-destructive behaviors? Would you say that they are not genius or they don't have the genius within Yeah, that's a really interesting question. If you watch movies today, I would say that the hero is almost equal in stature or genius, if you will, to the uh, antagonist. It's pretty amazing. So in a general sense, genius is genius. It's not good or bad. What we do is decide what we want to make of our life and who we want to be. And that determines the, if you will call it that, the quality of the genius. Right. Hmm. What would be the first step to unlock the genius within? The ancient Greeks, when they were curious about something, would go ask the great oracle at Delphi. And just above the entrance it were the words, know thyself. The key to unlocking genius is to know yourself. And that, 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 means, the, that means the light part as well as the dark part. They both have energy. They both create what we are. And Understanding that is the first step to unlocking that full genius. Right. So we go back to basics. Know oneself. Uh, Self-knowledge. Right. Know thyself. Probably the, the greatest advice ever given to us humans. Do you know anyone who claims or you would say that he or she knows themselves? Well, again, that's a very difficult question. There are a lot of people who claim to know themselves, but only they know if they truly know themselves. For me, if I personalize it, uh, knowing oneself isn't so much a, a product, an end result, as it is the journey. So constantly questioning, who am I and why am I doing what I do? And what am I good at? And why do I want to be good at that? Uh, this is the journey that's the important part. I say that because, you know, sometimes people say, oh, I've done something really bad. I've done it so bad that I'm a bad person. And while that may be society's point of view, and it may be legitimate in a, in a sense, knowing oneself is about acknowledging that and exploring that and understanding it. When you understand something, that is, you apply a, quote, meaning to it, it starts to unlock that genius within One of the things that I think, feel, is hard to do in this process of knowing ourselves is to distinguish what is us, like what are you saying, what we ident identify with um, coming from the innate place, 
And what are the things that are just our desires, our um, wants? We would say the important thing in the world or in life is to know our needs, our wants, and our desires. And they're somewhat different. But in learning what those truly are, we, again, have the opportunity of, of becoming the very best that we can. You know, for example, you might ask somebody, well, what's the most important thing in life? And they might say, well, money, you know, or if they're a politician or someone, they might say power. But we all know that in the journey of life, those are illusions. They are things that might make us feel like we have control over our destiny. But they actually don't have control over those things. What we do have control over is what we know about ourselves and what we're willing to explore about ourselves and what we're courageous enough to look at and decide what we wish to change and then to practice the discipline to change that. You mentioned um, illusion. What is not illusion about life? <laughs> oh, that's a really good one. Um, when I said money and power are an illusion. My, my, my wife is smiling about that because she always reminds me, we have to pay our rent, you know. But in, in that sense, in that particular sense, we sometimes, people sometimes live life as a monopoly game. And, and that's what I mean by an illusion. You can own property, you can do this, you can uh, follow the rules, you can uh, become the, the richest person. You, you can do all these things you can become a banker because you've always wanted to. But the real, the real part of life, the non-illusion part, is the journey and whether you're honest with yourself in that journey. And that is not an easy thing to do. Not easy at all because I think most of us are deluded um, and live that kind of life that it's not uh, meaningful, but we believe it is. So I think that whatever we believe in sort of becomes reality and that's what we go by. And just a comment, because you're really hitting the nail on the head here. It would be easy to say that the ability to imagine and the ability to um, de deny, if you will, certain things in life is a bad thing. But in some respects, it's very important to our self-preservation. Sometimes we don't have the time or the luxury of sitting there and thinking about what we want to do and what's the meaning of this and why do we want to change it. For example, if I'm, if I'm sitting here and a, and a lion is attacking me, uh, I really don't have time to question the, the meaning of my life unless I want to be the lion's lunch. So in some ways, denial is a very protective thing for us. It gives us time to get into a safe situation and then relook at that whatever it is that we experience. And slowly, by rethinking it through, we don't have to relive it, but by rethinking it through, we slowly assign a meaning to it. See, when, when, thing, when bad things happen, what we record in our bodies, we call that trauma, traumatic memories, what we record is sort of like if you can imagine five tape recorders, one is for smell, one is for vision, one is for what you hear, and, and so on. They're, they're sensory. And these recorders, only one can record anything at one moment. So during a, during a traumatic experience where we are counting on our body to react and save us, okay, that's how we perceive it at the time. 
that little recorder is switching back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And so what you end up with in a traumatic memory is perfectly recorded fragments of all sorts of things that are neurosensory. Now, the problem is those things can cause great problems later on because they're associated with a strong emotion. That strong emotion is self-preservation. So I will often talk to someone who has panic attacks, for example, and they say, well, it just comes out from nowhere. I don't know what it is and it scares me and I don't know what to do. Well, most of those or many of those are traumatic memory fragments and they're associated with a strong emotion. It might be fear, terror, it might be the need to do something. And that's kind of what a panic attack is, at least the way I look at it. The question is, what do you do with those, right? I mean, can you erase them? Can you erase traumatic memory? People talked about drugs that can erase traumatic memories, but I don't think they're that surgical. I don't think they're that specific. They erase a lot of stuff. And so in general, I would say traumatic memory, those fragments, those are there with you for the rest of your life. So how do you handle them? Well, the big thing is, is to understand it. Where did that come from? What does it mean? And once you have the time to get into a safe situation, the tiger's no longer there, okay? You're in a safe situation. It's quiet, restful, and reflective. You have a chance to rethink that through and reassign the meaning of that. Once you assign a meaning for it and you say, oh, I understand where that's coming from. I can't make it go totally away, but it no longer scares me because I do understand where it's coming from. So that's how we would, quote, process traumatic memory. Right. Um, That was one of my questions. You write about the existence of at least two neurobiological learning pathways, and you say traumatic and transformative learning. And you had explained what traumatic learning is. What is transformative learning? One of the questions you asked me way before we did the interview, you were asking me, what was, the, what was something really important that I discovered in my life? And I would have to say that one of the most important things I ever discovered in my educational physician and research experience was that there actually exist two learning pathways. Now, there's probably more, but there's at least two learning pathways that are not just ideas. They actually physically exist in the human body. And one of them I call the traumatic learning pathway. Most people would say that this is an event which turns on the sympathetic nervous system. They often call that the fight or flight. That's the traumatic nervous, the, the traumatic learning system. The, but there exists another one, and that's the rest reflect uh, one. And that's actually associated with the parasympathetic nervous system, the rest and reflect. The way the body works, and this makes some sense, is that if the tiger's about to eat you, you turn on the traumatic learning system, the sympathetic nervous system, and you forget about it the parasympathetic things. Who cares what the meaning of this is if you're struggling to be alive? Only when that's over can you go back and you, the person, can turn on that rest-reflect system. And that's called the transformative system. At least I call it that. And I call it that because what, what that does is it allows one to assign a meaningful, to assign a meaning to what happened. In the 12-step programs that, that are so popular today, a lot of the reflection that goes on 
is assigning meaning to the trauma or the traumatic events or the traumatic memories so that one can slowly deal with them. And the importance of doing that is that as one gets more adept at doing this reflective learning, this parasympathetic style learning, the more resilience we develop. So the next trauma that comes along is not quite as as damaging. It's not quite as overwhelming. That sounds great to me um, and makes a lot of sense because what you're talking about, from my understanding, is the integration of good and bad. In my case, one of the things that helped me a lot was to write about my traumatic experiences. And that became a meaningful experience, like writing a book, traveling, and meeting new people. So just now a memory of something that happened, and um, now it's, and it has become something good. What you say applies to the traumatic learning experience. We actually wouldn't benefit if we could forget the triggers, if we could forget the trauma. We, we wouldn't, because... That gives us an advantage. For example, uh, this is an extreme example, and I'm making it up. It doesn't come from any person that I've worked with. Let's say someone has been in in a war and has heard the rat-tat of weapons and experienced the trauma of being there, wondering if you're going to live, and watching other people die. This is a very traumatic thing. Now, later on, they come back. And they are in a situation that is no longer the same. And let's say, let's say we're at a restaurant and a car backfires. Bang, bang. You might expect that it could happen. The trauma survivor would be under the table shaking at that time. And everybody in the restaurant would say, oh, my God, what a weird person. There's something wrong with them. But if that had really been a gun, that person would be the only one that would have survived. We'd all be sitting there saying, oh, it's just a car backfiring, so it's no big deal, and we'd all be dead. The body maintains those triggers and those memories as a way of giving us an advantage should it happen again. And it's to our advantage to have that. The problem is the side effects of that, side effects of the anxiety attacks, the um, remembering bits and pieces, feeling uncomfortable when things come up. That part is no longer applicable to this situation in our world right now. And I often, I've often talked with, with some of my friends about this, my therapeutic friends, and, and they would say, well, this is psychotic. And I say, what's psychosis? And they say, well, it's a break in reality. This person is experiencing something that none of us are experiencing. But if you look at it in the way that I was just describing, that's not wrong. That's not bad. That's not ill. That's good protection. It's just in the wrong place at the wrong time. But should the situation be similar to that, that person would have the advantage of surviving. Now, that's not true in every case of psychosis and all that. But many times, if it's a trauma psychosis, a trigger, it does relate more back to the trauma and the protection surrounding that. That makes sense to me, too. So traumatic experiences, they are, in a way transformed or they should be wisdom they should become wisdom you know that's an interesting that that is really interesting that you said that because um it's easy for people i hear this all the time that when something's transformed you become 
more knowledgeable, and you become wiser. And and what I always do is I would always ask someone, well, what does that exactly mean to you? Those are good words, and I like them. But what does it mean to be more knowledgeable? What does that really mean? I'm not questioning you on this. I'll, I'll just pass on to you uh, my opinion of this. When I think that I'm more knowledgeable about something, it means I can take something I've learned and I can apply it in a way that's positive or in a way that I wish to, to a different situation. That means I've transformed that. Now, wisdom is different from knowledge. Knowledge is about knowing how to apply that experience into another one and do better, you know, be a be better at it, be more prepared, be more comfortable, be more adept. But wisdom is all about knowing when to do that. And by that, I mean, one, when to do it so that you're doing it in a situation that's valid, that's going to really work. And the second one is knowing when to do it so you don't hurt other people. So I make a big distinction between knowledge and wisdom. But those are, as you said, two big results of transformative style learning. If I can just take a second, one of the things that that really hit me as an educator was I would, and I've been an educator for 40 years now in, in colleges and uh, other situations. First thing that really struck me is the burnout. I just am so surprised how much burnout there is in the teachers and in the students as well. There's a, an unhappiness that's generally there. And the more intense the more uh, focused that teaching situation is, the more everybody burns out. And I always wondered about that. And then one day it struck me, you know what? Teaching is a form of traumatic learning. If I really thought about it, I was at a, a faculty meeting one day and they said, we want to be the best at getting these students to pass these exams. But what's the best way to do that that we know of? What's the best example? And I said, well, I guess it'd be brainwashing. I mean, you know, really, that works great. You can get someone to remember something no matter what. But it's very traumatic, and it causes all these side effects that we talked about, traumatic trigger. For example, if a student doesn't want to be sitting in a chair, they would rather be out playing, especially, you know, like an elementary school kid, a young elementary school kid, doesn't want to be sitting in a chair, ignoring everything and listening to a voice. They'd rather be out exploring the world. That's traumatic. And that feeling of being forced to sit there or forcing yourself to sit there becomes a trigger associated with what that person is saying. So you get tons of these traumatic triggers. And a lot, a lot of the exhaustion and burnout has to do with, well, I just can't handle that much. So with that thought in mind, I, I, it, it just occurred to me, well, there's got to be a better way. And what would it be? And that would be invoking the parasympathetic or the transformative learning situation. Now, that's a very, very, very different animal in a classroom. And one time I was at uh, a university and I was talking about this and <laughs> everyone in there were about 60 teachers in the audience and they said, oh, this is really nice. This is very existential. But how do you do it? And so I said, okay, for the next hour, we will invoke the transformative learning pathway here and see what happens. So the first thing that I did is I stopped talking. So I'm not creating a power differential between myself and my learners. I'm equalizing that power differential. I'm no longer going to be a teacher. I'm going to be, at best, a mentor who can show someone how to transform something using the transformative learning pathway. But I'm not going to do it, not unless I'm 
part of that group and they're stuck and they say, well, how would you do it? Then I would say, so equalizing the power, that's the first thing. And then the second thing is uh, stop teaching. And then there's a pause. <laughs> there's this silence. And depending on the group, it may take, may take five minutes or it may take you know, weeks. But at some point, the learners say, I'm getting bored with just sitting here. And they start turning on that rest, relax, discover pathway. And what it is, is this turning on, it's giving themselves permission to explore, to be curious. In teaching, we kill that curiosity because we're trying to get people to focus on something. But this way, we allow them to focus on what they want. Then it initiates self-discovery, which turns on the positive, the really positive side of transformative learning, which is a chemical cascade. One, it's it gives you a tremendously good feeling when you discovered something, you assign meaning to it. And second, that is very addictive. The body is designed that way. So as you do that, you become better and better at it. We were talking about these kinds of things and, the, and actually demonstrating them, and the teachers loved it. However, when it was their turn to try it, they mentioned two things that they didn't like. One was they felt that they, they lacked, they didn't have pre-assigned structure, so they felt anxious being a mentor. And secondly, they were always concerned about lack of discipline. They were worried about, well, what if the kids just start getting up and drinking and beating each other up? Well, it turns out that if you're in a group situation and you're turning on this transformative learning pathway, it takes a little while, but very, very quickly, the students are into this, who are getting it. They will tell the students who are not yet or who are concerned about invoking it, they'll tell them, hey, 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 quiet down, quiet down. Come on, join us over here. We're doing this. So what we found was that the students self-modulated themselves in a transformative learning situation. The end, end result was whether the teacher, quote, teacher, who's now acting more as a mentor. And by mentor, I don't mean a super teacher. I just mean they've equalized their power and they're part of the group. Whether they liked it or not, at the end, they're not exhausted. They're really turned on. So I think what we would have to do to exercise this more in school would be to redefine how that schooling works. For example, if it's not traumatic, traumatic learning is designed to remember something. 1492, I hit you with a ruler. If you don't remember it, you will. But it has no real meaning to you in life. On the other hand, if we allow people to assume, to assign meaning to what they're learning, they may not remember 1492. They'll remember the meaning of that and how it affects their life. So in order to, to evaluate or to test whether the transformative learning system is working, tests don't work well. You've got to have a different kind of way of evaluating where you are on the pathway, the journey of individual self-discovery and learning. So that's been one of the big challenges of my educator life was to come up with a way to do that. I actually had a colleague named Brent Cameron, a brilliant man, who had come up with a way to do this. And uh, he wrote about it in a book called Self-Design. He has since passed, which is a very sad thing, because it never got a chance to get into the mainstream hands of educators. But I've been trying to use his, uh, his evaluation system, which is a lot, which is kind of self-evaluation with the help of a mentor. That's, but it has different constructs. We're not exactly interested. Do you remember this date? 
or this item of data. Unfortunately, we don't have enough time in this to go into how that works on a practical basis. But um, I'd love to do that another time. And actually, I've been working on, on a book called Nurturing the Genius Within that is, that is talking about how to do it. Yeah, that uh, it's all about curiosity. When I'm, I am curious about how something works, then I engage. And you write about the, it becomes addictive. Uh, there's something to do with the happiness too. I actually feel happy when I learn something that I am curious about, interested. Uh, the thing about schooling is that I don't think, I don't know if the students can be, can engage and, and be interested in every curriculum. But you, you just said the key thing, that they may not be interested at that moment in any specific curriculum. And you have to let go of it. I don't, in, in that situation, I don't try and take a uh, six-year-old and teach them mathematics. I let them discover what they wish. And I might suggest how I would solve that problem using a mathematical approach. And they'll get it. If they're interested, they'll get interested in that. And if they won't, they'll put it off until they're ready. They'll delve into mathematics on their own because they want to. Or they might not. That may not be their thing, as we talked about when we first started. What makes an individual an individual? Well, it depends on their particular genius. You could take a, a Mozart and you could refuse to let them play piano and force them to instead uh, uh, learn mathematics or to learn physics against their will. They would learn stuff because you're teaching it to them traumatically. And they wouldn't be able to get rid of it. They would never be the genius that they could be. I think that this is something that affects us in a very, very broad societal way. I mean, people have said to me, wow, what a weird world this is we live in. You know, fake information. Nobody knows what to believe. They only believe what the crowd says. This is very juvenile, but what is going on in our world? And if you look at a lot of what's going on, for example, in national politics, it's extremely traumatic. It's turning on that traumatic learning pathway to force people to learn certain things and act certain ways. And it messes them up. What's the answer to that? The answer to that is to invoke the other pathway. And that really addresses things like truth. It's when we get on our own discovery pathway that we, we learn what is true and what isn't. And we assign meaning to that. This dual learning pathway, it affects humans in, in virtually everything that we do. So true, then. Um, the situation that we live, the system, everything has a system, and the system has a motive. The motive, it's very much connected to the human desire and basic desires uh, for money, safety, power. That could be the desire that you talked about. What is the difference between desire and want? Well, I make a very fine distinction, again, between them, just like between knowledge and wisdom. Need is pretty easy. You can say that's a biological need or a psychological need, but we can't forget that it could be a spiritual need. Now, I'm not talking about religion. I'm talking about spirituality. Religion's a different thing altogether. Spirituality is something that all humans share, whether they acknowledge it or not. It's, it's part of our being. So if you look at it that way, then you could say, what's the difference between a need, want, and desire. A want is something that we often imagine, and we tend to um, physicalize it. I want money. 
I want power. I want control. I want a house. I want a new car. I want, I want, I want. Okay, so it tends to be more in the physical realm, and I'd like to get back to that in a minute. Whereas desire is more in the emotional realm. We desire, if you if you look at humans in general, one of the things that we desire is to not be alone. That's very difficult for many people. That's It's why meditation is kind of scary for some people. It's difficult to be alone. And we as creatures, from the time, from when we're first in the womb, we're there with a mother surrounding us whose heartbeat is there and everything. We're not alone. Maybe that's our higher power at the time. And then when we're born, we have physical parents around us. It's only later that we realize that we're on an individual journey. And that's scary. Why is that scary? That's what I wanted to get back to. What, why, why are we so susceptible to power and money and uh, uh, social order and things like that? Why is, how, how does this trap work? It's my opinion that the one thing humans are aware of, this awareness starts with birth, the actual physical birth, is I think babies, when they're born, are more conscious than we give them credit for. I think they don't remember a lot later on about birth because it's so traumatic. And if you start thinking about what would the experience be if you were comfortably in a space where you had a constant sound that was always there, mother's heartbeat, her voice. You also were always nurtured. You don't have to breathe. It's like I'm at the center of the universe. And then from birth on, you're not only not at the center of the universe, you don't, you don't have any control, it seems like. I think there's a, an innate fear of that. And I think it translates, as we get older, into the fear of our mortality. And so there is an illusion that kind of comes about, and that is, if I had more money, I can live longer. I, I don't have to die as fast. I don't have to deal with this. If I had more power, maybe I could somehow escape death, or I could figure out a way to prolong my life forever. And this becomes such a driving force that we, we can tap into that, and we can get trapped in these illusions, because the truth is we are going to die. Now, the, real, the question that comes after that, of course, is, well, what does that mean? The only experience we've had as humans is we had our pre-birth experience, which was, call it good, okay? It was really nice, okay? And then we had the birth experience, which was really bad. And most people don't want to remember any of that. It's too traumatic. So it, it makes sense that we would stylize that, and we do in religion. Most religions or many religions say, what happens after you die? You go to heaven, you go back to fetal life, or you go to hell, which is being constantly born. That concept is something we have from experience, and it's always, always there lurking in the back of our, in the background. But it's very important that we do some things, and some of those things will help relieve that traumatic stress. For example, we know if you take a baby and you don't stroke it, you don't give it physical human touch. It will have tremendous stress problems. Whether we're babies or whether we're humans and have a, a partner, the one thing we crave in not being alone is actually being touched. This is a if if we can tolerate it, because some trauma survivors have you know issues around that. But if we can tolerate that, it's it's something that we crave, absolutely crave, and it calms us down. 
and it relieves us from having to deal with the mortality issue. So then it gets to a really cool thing, which I'm just going to mention, okay? And that is what happens after we die. And currently, there are no answers to this. I mean, there are a lot of hypothetical answers or ideas, but they aren't well grounded. We've never had a way of proving anything. But in our time, yours and mine, in our time, there is a new theory that has come out in physics that is just about as weird as a guess, and it's called M superstring theory, multiverse superstring theory. And one of the things that it implies that there was something going on, and you can describe it, before the Big Bang, and that there's something beyond death. And for the first time, one can investigate what happens during death. What happens and where do you go? And I won't talk about that anymore because that's a, that's a whole uh, talk in itself. But we may, we may in our time, in this time that we live, may have the answer to that. And that's going to totally reshape humanity. Wow. Uh, do you believe that? That's a belief or that's a, actually a hope? Or I do. <laughs> right. <laughs> All three together. Wow. Powerful. Um, yeah, so in a way, all systems, including uh, religious systems, they are preying uh, on our wants. Yeah, and I would, I would like to add to that because of the word you chose, praying, like P-R-E-Y, that while religions are like an organized social activity, you have to do certain things to remain part of the religion or you get kicked out. It's like a social club in some ways. Now, I'm not demeaning religion at all because religion plays a major part in our world. So I'm not demeaning it. Just saying that in that aspect, it's another social club. It's the spirituality that connects us to something, a higher power, a life after living, a quality, a journey on our life. It's, it's the spirituality that's the key. And so you can be very spiritual and religious. Or you can be very spiritual and totally non-religious. Or you can be very religious and non-spiritual. But it's the spirituality that defines us as a human. I agree. What is your definition of spirituality? You, boy, you're really good at this. You always ask, what's the definition of? And you know, that's, the, that's one of the, the ancient ways, the, the Greek ways of always approaching a problem. Define it first. Okay, so what is spirituality? Spirituality is a sense that you are not alone, that there's something greater, and the attempt to make that connection. That spirituality, that sense, probably comes from when we're in the womb, because we're not alone, and we're very safe. And it may be that that need starts then, and we carry it through our traumatic life, and are constantly searching for that higher power. And when you're a child, the higher power is your, your mother. And then later, it's your parents. And then it's your peer group. And then it's your government and, you know, and all that sort of stuff as we're more adult. It might be your, your profession. It might be um, your position. But ultimately, we're looking for that connection. The thing that makes us uniquely human is what is spiritual. I don't have it in front of me right now, but there was a lady who was the pioneer in exploring this in education. Absolute genius. I would have to step away for a moment and go get it. Her name I thought was Virginia, and she wrote about 
spirituality and education. She has since passed, which is very, very sad. But she was trying to bring that aspect back in a transformative way so that people could develop that connection more, whatever it is, however it's meaningful to them. Yeah, it's interesting. You said that we are not alone, almost as some sort of truth. Um, <laughs> we're not alone. Hmm. I like that. I like that in the sense of um, of connecting with others. I think that's a great way of not feeling alone. Being alone is actually a feeling that can be fulfilled by connecting with others in a in a meaningful way. And that might be what you're trying to say, your definition of spirituality. But I don't understand spirituality in a sense of a higher power or a sort of God. Well, it doesn't have to be God. This is, this is a religious concept that it's a God. And it's a man or a woman or a sexless thing. Uh, but there are religions that would regard a rock as your higher power. And you can relate to the rock. Um, there are religions that are pantheistic that you know you relate to everything the sky the ground you thank the sky for a day you know i mean i'm referring to higher power in a very 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 general way and by the way i found that book it's by rachel kessler k-e-s-s-l-e-r it's called the soul of education and it's one of the most beautiful books i've ever seen written on that search for a spirit that, that spiritual journey that that students need it's just as important as as all the facts we're giving and her her byline it says helping students find connection compassion and character at school rachel kessler the soul of education fine book i'm so sorry she passed because uh, she was just developing this when she when she uh, passed from this world i'm glad she wrote a book about it my last questions to you, then, they're all related to well-being, mental, um, spiritual health. One of which is, what is to be one's best friend, in your opinion? What does it mean to be another's best friend? What does it mean to be your, your own best friend? Oh, my best friend. Dan's best friend. I like being around people who are, first, uh, are or wish to be consciously aware of their body and mind and soul. That, I like people like that. that. That person, we have a connection of kind. I like someone who is also on a journey of self-discovery. It's really exciting to share journeys of self-discovery. And third, that person, I like people who would enjoy some companionship along the way. So those would be really my criteria for being a, a best friend of mine. And I have many best friends in that sense. Not in the usual best friend, oh, my friend would do anything for me. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the real life friend. Uh, bless you. What's the most fascinating discovery you've made about your own self? Probably the most fascinating thing in my own self-discovery in my life was that there are two profound ways of learning, traumatic and transformative, and not just existentially or uh, theoretically, thinking about them. But, but as a doctor, being aware that I can identify the neurobiological system itself, it exists. It's not just another theory. Well, learning is like a computer. Learning is like blah. It's, this is how it occurs. And that 
that has been one of the biggest discoveries of my life. I have to tell you, the other biggest discovery in my life, the major discovery, is my life partner. It turns out my life partner, we, we met as dancers. And uh, as time has gone on, we've developed that unique, deep friendship that you were talking about. And uh, what makes it particularly nice at, at my age is the companionship and that we are both on journeys of self-discovery that we like to share. What is another word for healing? <laughs> That's so interesting, for healing. If you think about narrowly what we've been talking about, it would be transformation. I have to be careful about that because that word has become co-opted. You know, whenever you get a word that um, strikes the hearts of many people, it can have many different meanings. So when I talk about transformative learning, there are those who think of transformative learning as being uh, super rigorous, traumatic <laughs> learning. And I'm not talking about that. Um, that has been hijacked. And you have to be very, very careful that we know what we're talking about. So help me again. Ask that question one more time. <laughs> yes. What is another word for healing? That's very profound because there's physical healing, there's mental healing, there's spiritual healing, and each is a little bit different. I think if you talk about healing, to me, in a general sense, it's bringing those into balance, bringing the physical, the spiritual, the mental, and the spiritual together in a balanced way that allows me to continue on my journey of self-discovery. Healing implies that you get better. But, but you know, I'm a doctor, and one of the things, well, I'm a retired physician. So one of the things I learned that was very telling early on in my medical career is that I don't save anybody. You know, when I was young, I thought, oh, I saved this person from this disease, and I saved this person. But actually, we don't save anybody from anything. We give them resources so that they can heal or save themselves and get back on their journey. So in a, that, in a sense, that's what I mean. That's what I would say about healing. Nobody can actually heal you. You have to heal yourself in mind, body, and spirit. I like that, Dan, very much. The alignment of body, mind, and spirit. Right? What is love to you? Well, well that's a very profound question. It, you can define it in several ways. Now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put on my, my researcher hat, my biochemist hat, and I'm going to say that, that love, as we often think about it, is an emotion. Now, now I have to define emotion because I define it different than most people. Feelings are different from emotions. Feelings are different from emotions. An emotion is when a biological chemical is released in the body. It tends to make us think a certain way or act a certain way. We tend to call those hormones, but there's a whole bunch of them. Okay, so you could define love and affection as, uh, well, it's a result of a certain hormone. In this case, maybe it's pitocin. And it causes us to do things we normally wouldn't do. So, for example, if you think about it, uh, having a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a mate is an extremely dangerous thing. Right? I mean, you don't ever really know all about that person. And letting them that close to you is a very dangerous thing. So why do we do it? And one of the reasons is that if we evoke, in, in the process of evoking the parasympathetic system, 
one thing that we can do is to cause a Pitocin release. And that makes us, whether we're men or women, uh, nurturers. We like the little things and we try to help them find a way. We nurture them. It's a very chemical thing, an emotion. A feeling is a whole different thing. A feeling is when certain muscles in my body tense up and that creates a feeling. So, for example, if I'm scared and I'm talking about fear as a feeling, not as an emotion, but that's a chemical thing, but we're talking about it as a feeling, you can search your body and say, which muscles are tense right now? And usually it's the hands, the feet, and the abdomen. We're tensing those muscles like we're getting ready to fight or flee. That would be the feeling of fear in distinction from the emotion of fear, which is chemically induced. It's the catecholamines. At any rate, what is love? Love is more than nurturing. Nurturing is a separate thing. And yet it evokes a feeling that I would like to call, I'm calling it a feeling because it's not necessarily chemical, a feeling that is very poorly described that I call empathy. It is the, the ability to imagine and feel in your body what another person is going through. And, and I think love has to do, the very first step of love is to have empathy. Then it, you can turn that empathy on further by being in a romantic situation. Now we're talking very physical. This would be a situation that turns on the rest, relax, and meaning pathway. Nice movie, nice music, um, a nice meal. Uh, being together, touching hands, things touching, uh, breathing together, singing, dancing, moving in the same rhythm, all that stuff. Okay, so that in that begins that. And then, of course, if that progresses, and if it's going to result in a mating, uh, however you want to call it, then at the very end, it turns on the traumatic learning system. And that is a very sympathetic nervous system. It's just at the very end, that moment of, of experience extreme expression of extreme joy and call it love if you wish is now very sympathetic now what's going on is that somewhere we're interpreting all that somewhere we're assigning a meaning to this and we say well that situation had this 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 and this but it didn't feel like love whatever that is this one felt like love but it didn't consummate so we assign a meaning and that thing that meaning that we assign we can call love, affection, nurturing. But what it really does is it makes us lower our defenses. And we're, we're, we allow someone to touch us, to really get close. I mean, how do I know, how do I know they don't have a knife or a gun? Or they're gonna, I don't know that. Or they're crazy. I don't know that. But that feeling of love and that process that we are just talking about um, allows one to get close. But it does start with empathy. You have to be able to empathize. Right. What is the difference between empathy and compassion? These are really great questions. Empathy is a sense of knowing, of feeling what another person feels. By feeling, I mean in the muscles. I see that person, I read their face, I read their behaviors, their actions, I associate that with all my memories, and uh, something comes out in me. I have that a feeling, okay? That's empathy. But compassion is irregardless of empathy. I value that other person and, and their needs and wants and desires. So to me, compassion is a more intellectual thing that we do. We decide we're going to be compassionate. 
It may or may not be empathy. It may or may not be, I may not even like the person. I can show compassion to an enemy who five minutes ago is trying to shoot me. So it's not necessarily an emotional thing that is a chemical thing. It's not necessarily a feeling thing, certain muscles, but it's more of a, an, call it a thought override. I am going to treat that person as I wish I were treated in that situation. Not everybody has, a, has empathy and not everyone has compassion. And this is very interesting because it's very confusing when a serial killer shows compassion. And we say, oh, well, that doesn't make sense. A serial killer has no has no feelings, no emotions. But you see, when you separate them like that, you could be you could be a sociopath. You could have no feelings for anyone, no no uh, empathy, whatever. But you could still act compassionately. And if I had to give an example, a very bad example, by the way, but it's just you know, uh, it would be someone who's a killer, like uh, Al Capone. Okay, here's a guy who ordered the death of many many people, and yet he showed compassion to families when they were. When they didn't have money or whether their children needed hospitalization, he helped them out. He showed compassion in spite of his sociopathic, you know, lack of empathy. Right. That's interesting. I never heard it that way, uh, that um, a psychopath could actually be compassionate. I never heard that before. I think they can. It's a cerebral thing, though. It's not an emotional one. It's not a, a complex emotional binding bonding response yeah there's a i see what you mean there's a separation um uh, it's a detachment right from the person oh yeah i wanted to make a comment about the definition of love someone said uh, that love when i asked him he said gratitude what is gratitude a feeling an emotion well you could probably answer that just if you apply what i've just said so the first thing would be is gratitude the result of a chemical change in the body? And I would have to say, mm, at this time, I know of no hormone that causes gratitude. <laughs> that doesn't mean there isn't one, but I don't know of one right now. Okay, so I would say it's probably not an emotion, at least as we would know it today. So the question is, is it a feeling? And I would say, if you have gratitude for someone, say, helping you, do you feel any muscles that are different than every day? Do you, do you feel anything? Some people might feel a slight constriction of the chest, like they're going to cry, or the throat, right? I'm so, I appreciate this so much, I'm about to cry. That is a muscular thing. So there's, a, there's an aspect of gratitude that would be a feeling. And then, of course, there's the meaning of it, or the cerebral interpretation of it. So what is gratitude? It would be something like appreciation for something. And to me, appreciation means that it has meaning in my life. So meaning would mean, you know, it's something that I probably can transform, whether, whether the thing that I'm, I'm appreciative of was traumatic, was I learned it traumatically or non-traumatically, transformatively, I would still be able to apply the meaning of that to my life. Maybe I would have to transform what happened. So for example, um, Someone could die in my life, and that's not that's very traumatic. It brings up my mortality. I have to deal with it, but I could still be appreciative of that person's death. And I don't mean, oh, I'm glad they died, but I mean I could be appreciative of that because I've learned something about myself. 
that makes gratitude something that is uh, transformative, yeah, feeling. Transformative and spiritual, my meaningful, powerful. I know it's powerful. <laughs> I practice gratitude a lot, and I, it's just, uh, yeah, it's magical to me. Uh, my last two questions. Yeah, two questions. <laughs> Thank you, Dan. What is success to you? Oh, actually, to me, I can, uh, that I can work with. Um, in my journey, I, have, I am not my job. And, and that's been a big thing. And I am not my total wealth. And I am not how many people's lives I control. So that's been a big help letting go of those things. I would say it's satisfaction, that sense of I'm satisfied with my journey. And that satisfaction is really, really important, that sense of satisfaction. Because if you're always running too fast and you don't reflect, you don't get that sense of satisfaction. If you're focused on just the outcome, it's very easy to miss the satisfaction. If you're interested, if you if all of your energy for four years is on getting your college degree, when you get that college degree, many people say, and I experienced, it's not satisfying. I mean, you know, it's a piece of paper for heaven's sake. Where's the satisfaction in going to college? And the satisfaction is the journey, people you meet, and what you learn in your own life uh, life journey. If you knew you would die within a few days or weeks, what would you change about your life today? The journey, I would just, I would keep on my journey. But I think I would try, I would make an effort to show my partner how much our journey together means to me and how, how appreciative I am of that. What are three things about life you know for sure? If it's possible, yeah. Do we know for sure? We're all born into this world, into this world, and we, we will leave it. So that's one. That's probably the greatest assurance there is, whether you like it or not. The second is, is that we have the power to assign the meaning to our journey. That, that's a little, maybe that's a little existential, but what if I'm born during a cataclysmic world war? That's not exactly the best time to be born. How can that be one of the most important positive things in my life? And that is, it's about the journey. It's about what I make of it. And the last thing is that if I meditate, if I take care of my body, I exercise daily, if I am willing to show my emotions in a positive way, if I pray to whatever my higher power is and pray just my mean talking or my mean saying, thank you for this food, thank you for that plant, Thank you, Rock, for being there and being in a beautiful situation. As long as I'm connected in that sense, those would be the three things that I would value the most. Thank you so much for your contribution to well-being, as I call it, uh, living well, being well. How can we find more information about what you do, your books, um, services, future projects? Well, the first thing is, all these gems that we were sharing on learning and especially transformative learning, I try to reveal in my book, Unlock the Genius Within, okay? And it's published in 2015 by Roman and uh, Littlefield Education. That's out there. It's all over the world. You can get it from Amazon, Barnes & Noble. You can even get it from the Savant Bookstore Honolulu, as well as major bookstores worldwide. 
Um, I do keep a website, and that one is at http colon slash slash jadic.yolasite.com. There's no www in there. It's just http colon slash slash janik.yolasite.com. And I, I really try to honor all the various kinds of things we talked about. You know, my, my life as a researcher, I try to honor my life as an author, uh, I try to as a dancer, and I try to reflect that in my website. Um, I love hearing from people, always enjoy hearing from people. I do want to say how much I've enjoyed talking with you. Thank you so much, Valeria. Thank you again, again, and again. And I'll talk to you soon. Bye for now. Yeah, thank you. Aloha. <laughs> Bye for now. Thank you for listening. To learn more about Dr. Daniel S. Janik, please visit his website, janik.yolasite.com. To learn more about this podcast, please visit fitforjoy.org slash podcast. Thank you again for listening and bye for now.